This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton. Section 14. Chapter 8. American Notes. American Notes was written soon after Dickens had returned from his first visit to America. That visit had, of course, been a great epoch in his life, but how much of an epoch men did not truly realize until some time after, in the middle of a quiet story about Salisbury and a ridiculous architect. His feelings flamed out and flared up to the stars in Martin Chuzzlewit. In the American notes, however, are not interesting because in them he betrays his feelings when he does not know that he is betraying them. Dickens' first visit to America was, from his own point of view, and at the beginning, a happy and festive experiment. It is very characteristic of him that he went among the Americans, enjoyed them, even admired them, and then had a quarrel with them. Nothing was ever so unmistakable as his good will, except his ill will and they were never far apart. And this was not, as some bloodless moderns have sneeringly insinuated, a mere repetition of the proximity between the benevolent stage and the quarrelsome stage of drink. It was a piece of pure optimism. He believed so readily that men were going to be good to him, that an injury to him was something more than an injury. It was a shock. What was the exact nature of the American shock must, however, be more carefully stated. The famous quarrel between Dickens and America, which finds its most elaborate expression in American notes, though its most brilliant expression in Martin Chuzzlewit, is an incident about which a great deal remains to be said. But the thing which most specially remains to be said is this. This old Anglo-American quarrel was much more fundamentally friendly than most Anglo-American alliances. In Dickens' day, each nation understood the other enough to argue. In our time neither nation understands itself even enough to quarrel. There was an English tradition from Fox and 18th century England. There was an American tradition from Franklin and 18th century America, and they were still close enough together to discuss their differences with acrimony, perhaps, but with certain fundamental understandings. The 18th century belief in a liberal civilization was still a dogma, for dogma is the only thing that makes argument or reasoning possible. America, under all its swagger, did still really believe that Europe was its fountain and its mother, because Europe was more fully civilized. Dickens, under all his disgust, did still believe that America was in advance of Europe, because it was more democratic. It was an age, in short, in which the word progress could still be used reasonably, because the whole world looked to one way of escape, and there was only one kind of progress under discussion. Now, of course, progress is a useless word, for progress takes for granted an already defined direction, and it is exactly about the direction that we disagree. Do not let us therefore be misled into any mistaken optimism or special self-congratulation upon what many people would call the improved relations between England and America. The relations are improved because America has finally become a foreign country. 
and with foreign countries all sane men take care to exchange a certain consideration and courtesy. But even as late as the time of Dickens' first visit to the United States, we English still felt America as a colony, an insolent, offensive, and even unintelligible colony sometimes, but still a colony, a part of our civilization, a limb of our life. And America itself, as I have said, under all its bounce and independence, really regarded us as a mother country. This being the case, it was possible for us to quarrel like kinsmen. Now we only bow and smile like strangers. This tone, as a sort of family responsibility, can be felt quite specially all through the satires or suggestions of these American notes. Dickens is cross with America, because he is worried about America as if he were its father. He explores its industrial, legal, and educational arrangements like a mother looking at the housekeeping of a married son. He makes suggestions with a certain acidity. He takes a strange pleasure in being pessimistic. He advises them to take note how much better certain things are done in England. All this is very different from Dickens' characteristic way of dealing with a foreign country. In countries really foreign, such as France, Switzerland, and Italy, he had two attitudes, neither of them in the least worried or paternal. When he found a thing in Europe which he did not understand, such as the Roman Catholic Church, he simply called it an old-world superstition, and sat looking at it like a moonlit ruin. When he found something that he did understand, such as luncheon baskets, he burst into carols of praise over the superior sense in our civilization and good management to continental methods. An example of the first attitude may be found in one of his letters, in which he describes the backwardness and idleness of Catholics who would not build the Birmingham in Italy. He seems quite unconscious of the obvious truth that the backwardness of Catholics was simply the refusal of Bob Cratchit to enter the house of Gradgrind. An example of the second attitude can be found in the purple patches of fun in Mugby Junction, in which the English waitress denounces the profligate French habit of providing new bread and clean food for people travelling by rail. The point is, however, that in neither case has he the air of one suggesting improvements or sharing a problem with the people engaged on it. He does not go carefully with a notebook through Jesuit schools, nor offer friendly suggestions to the governors of Parisian prisons. Or, if he does, it is in different spirit. It is in the spirit of an ordinary tourist being shown over the Colosseum or the pyramids. But he visited America in the spirit of a government inspector, dealing with something it was his duty to inspect. This is never felt either in his praise or blame of continental countries. When he did not leave a foreign country to decay like a dead dog, he merely watched it at play like a kitten. France he mistook for a kitten, Italy he mistook for a dead dog. But with America he could feel and fear. There he could hate, because he could love. There he could feel not the past alone, nor the present, but the future also. And like all brave men, when he saw the future, he was a little afraid of it. For all tests by which good citizen and strong reformer can be distinguished from the vague faddist and inhuman skeptic, I know no better test than this, that the unreal reformer sees in front of him one certain future. 
the future of his fad, while the real reformer sees before him ten or twenty futures among which his country must choose, and may in some dreadful hour choose the wrong one. The true patriot is always doubtful of victory because he knows that he is dealing with a living thing, a thing with free will. To be certain of free will is to be uncertain of success. The subject matter of the real difference of opinion between Dickens and the public of America can only be understood if it is thus treated as the dispute between brothers about the destiny of a common heritage. The point at issue might be stated like this. Dickens, on his side, did not in his heart doubt for a moment that England would eventually follow America along the road towards real political equality and purely republican institutions. He lived, it must be remembered, before the revival of aristocracy, which has since overwhelmed us. The revival of aristocracy works through popular science and commercial dictatorship, and which has nowhere been more manifest than in America itself. He knew nothing of this. In his heart he conceded to the Yankees that not only was their revolution right, but would ultimately be completed everywhere. But on the other hand, his whole point against the American experiment was this, that if it ignored certain ancient English contributions, it would go to pieces for lack of them. Of this, the first was good manners, and the second, individual liberty. Liberty, that is, to speak and write against the trend of the majority. In these things he was much more serious and much more sensible than it is the fashion to think he was. He was indeed one of the most serious and sensible critics England has ever had of current and present problems, though his criticism is useless to the point of nonentity about all things remote from him in style of civilization or in time. His point about good manners is really important. All his grumblings through his book of American notes, all his shrieking satire in Martin Chuzzlewit, are expressions of a grave and reasonable fear he had touching the future of democracy. And remember again what has been already remarked instinctively, he paid America the compliment of looking at her as the future of democracy. The mistake which he attacked still exists. I cannot imagine why it is that social equality is somehow supposed to mean social familiarity. Why should equality mean that all men are equally rude? Should it not rather mean that all men are equally polite? Might it not quite reasonably mean that all men should be equally ceremonious and stately and pontifical? What is there especially equalitarian, for instance, in calling your political friends and even your political enemies by their Christian names in public? There is something very futile in the way in which certain socialist leaders call each other Tom, Dick, and Harry, especially when Tom is accusing Harry of having basely imposed upon the well-known imbecility of Dick. There is something quite undemocratic in all men calling each other by the special and affectionate term comrade, especially when they say it with a sneer and smart inquiry about the funds. Democracy would be quite satisfied if every man called every other man sir. Democracy would have no conceivable reason to complain if every man called every other man your excellency or your holiness or brother of the sun and moon. The only democratic essential is that it should be a term of dignity and that it should be given to all. To abolish all terms of dignity is no more specially democratic than the Roman emperor's wish to cut off everybody's head at once was especially democratic. That involved equality, certainly, 
but it was lacking in respect. Dickens saw America as markedly the seat of this danger. He saw that there was a perilous possibility that Republican ideals might be allied to a social anarchy, good neither for them nor for any other ideals. Republican simplicity, which is difficult, might be quickly turned into Bohemian brutality, which is easy. Cincinnatus, instead of putting his hand to the plough, might put his feet on the tablecloth, and an impression prevail that it was all part of the same rugged equality and freedom. Insolence might become a tradition. Bad manners might have all the sanctity of good manners. There you are, cries Martin Chuzzlewit indignantly, when the American has befouled the butter. A man deliberately makes a hog of himself, and that is an institution. But the thread of thought, which we must always keep in hand in this matter, is that he would not thus have worried about the degradation of Republican simplicity into general rudeness, if he had not from first to last instinctively felt that America held human democracy in her hand, to exalt it or to let it fall. In one of his gloomier moments he wrote down his fear that the greatest blow ever struck at liberty would be struck by America in the failure of her mission upon the earth. This brings us to the other ground of his alarm, the matter of liberty of speech. Here also he was much more reasonable and philosophic than has commonly been realized. The truth is that the lurid individualism of Carlyle has, with its violent colors, killed the tones of most criticism of his time, and just as we can often see a scheme of decoration better if we cover some flaming picture, so you can judge nineteenth-century England much better if you leave Carlyle out. He is important to moderns because he led that return to Toryism which has been the chief feature of modernity. But his judgments were often not only spiritually false, but really quite superficial. Dickens understood the dangers of democracy far better than Carlyle, just as he understood the merits of democracy far better than Carlyle. And of this fact we can produce one plain evidence in the manner of which we speak. Carlyle, in general dislike of the revolutionary movement, lumped liberty and democracy together and said that the chief objection to democracy was that it involved the excess and misuse of liberty. He called democracy anarchy or no rule. Dickens, with far more philosophical insight and spiritual delicacy, saw that the real danger of democracy is that it tends to the very opposite of anarchy, even to the very opposite of liberty. He lamented in America the freedom of manners, but he lamented even more the absence of freedom of opinion. I believe there is no country on the face of the earth, he says, where there is less freedom of opinion on any subject in reference to which there is a broad difference of opinion than in this. There I write the words with reluctance, disappointment, and sorrow, but I believe it from the bottom of my soul. The notion that I, a man alone by myself in America, should venture to suggest to the Americans that there was one point on which they were neither just to their own countrymen nor to us, actually struck the boldest dumb. Washington, Irving, Prescott, Hoffman, Bryant, Halleck, Dana, Washington, Alliston. Every man who writes in this country is devoted to the question, and not one of them dares to raise his voice and complain of the atrocious state of the law. The wonder is that a breathing man can be found with temerity enough 
to suggest to the Americans the possibility of their having done wrong. I wish you could have seen the faces that I saw down both sides of the table at Hartford when I began to talk about Scott. I wish you could have heard how I gave it out. My blood so boiled when I thought of the monstrous injustice that I felt, as if it were twelve feet high when I thrust it down their throats. Dickens knew no history, but he had all history behind him in feeling that a pure democracy does tend, when it goes wrong, to be too traditional and absolute. The truth is indeed a singular example of the unfair attack upon democracy in our own time. Everybody can repeat the platitude that the mob can be the greatest of all tyrants, but few realize or remember the corresponding truth which goes along with it, that the mob is the only permanent and unassailable high priest. Democracy drives its traditions too hard, but democracy is the only thing that keeps any traditions. An aristocracy must always be going after some new thing. The severity of democracy is far more of a virtue than is liberty. The decorum of a democracy is far more of a danger than is lawlessness. Dickens discovered this in his great quarrels about the copyright, when a whole nation acted on a small point of opinion as if it were going to lynch him. But fortunately for the purpose of this argument, there is no need to go back to the forties for such a case. Another great literary man has of late visited America, and it is possible that Maxim Gorky may be in a position to state how far democracy is likely to err on the side of mere liberty and laxity. He may have found, like Dickens, some freedom of manners. He did not find much freedom of morals. Along with such American criticism should really go his very characteristic summary of the questions of the Red Indian. It marks the combination between the mental narrowness and the moral justice of the old liberal. Dickens can see nothing in the Red Indian except that he is barbaric, retrograde, bellicose, uncleanly, and superstitious. In short, that he is not a member of the special civilization of Birmingham or Brighton. It is curious to note the contrast between the cheery, nay contempt with which Dickens speaks of the American Indian and that chivalrous and pathetic essay in which Washington Irving celebrates the virtues of the vanishing race. Between Washington Irving and his friend Charles Dickens, there was always indeed this ironical comedy of inversion. It is amusing that the Englishman should have been the pushing and even pert modernist, and the American the stately antiquarian and lover of lost causes. But while a man of more mellow sympathies may well dislike Dickens' dislike of savages, and even disdain his disdain, he ought to sharply remind himself of the admirably ethical fairness and equity which meet with that restricted outlook. In the very act of describing Red Indians as devils who, like so much dirt, it would pay us to sweep away, he pauses to deny emphatically that we have any right to sweep them away. We have no right to wrong the man, he means to say, even if he himself be a kind of wrong. Here we strike the ringing iron of the old conscience and sense of honor which marked the best men of his party and of his epoch. This rigid and even reluctant justice towers at any rate far above modern views of savages, above the sentimentalism of the mere humanitarian and the far weaker sentimentalism that pleads for brutality to wrong people because they are nasty or humanitarian 
who cannot be just to them without pretending that they are nice. The end of section 14, chapter 8, American Notes.